0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is all of it on WNYC. I'm Alison Stewart. In a recent Vulture article, TV critic Catherine Von Arendonk writes, quote, This was a good year in TV. It was also a bad year in TV. It was an everything year in TV because TV is too many things now. The overwhelming amount of streaming content of 2021, coupled with an endless pandemic-induced scrolling through infinite show options, may have left you feeling overwhelmed when it came to deciding what to watch. Thankfully, Catherine is here to help us narrow down the catalog, providing her favorite comfort shows, daring dramas, children's entertainment, and the best of pandemic TV. She has sifted through what she calls the quote so muchness of it all just in time for the year-end reviewing including projects from acclaimed directors barry jenkin and taika waititi alongside performances from newcomers like the cast of reservation dogs and station 11's matilda lawler and of course we talk succession you can view all of the vulture tv critics top 10 lists in the latest issue of the magazine as well as on vulture.com joining us now is vulture tv critic katherine von arendonk
2: friend of the show welcome back Catherine. Thank you so much for having me back. I love to talk about television at the end of the year because we can really look and pick our favorite things and like also make sure that we catch up on all the great things that we missed.
1: You wrote a lot about comfort TV, something we were all doing on some level this year. How do you define comfort TV?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question because... To some extent it's something that everyone defines for themselves. I know a lot of people for whom the comfort TV of the year was F1, uh, the F1 Netflix TV show and everyone got super into like Formula One racing and that was like their main comfort TV. For some people it's reality television. Um, I think for a lot of people comfort TV is a thing that they can turn to and they know roughly what it's going to give them. You know, They're Mm -hmm. not gonna have to sit there and pull a blanket over their head and be um, overwrought or concerned or anxious about whatever is showing up on TV. And it is that kind of perfect mix of familiarity and surprise that lets you feel entertained, but doesn't make you feel like you're gonna have to hide behind a corner.
1: Did any particular show fall in this category for you?
2: Oh, there's, I mean, there's lots of comfort TV. Um, For me, All Creatures Great and Small on PBS Masterpiece is just the pinnacle of the most comforting thing that I watched this last year. It came out last January. The second season um, begins on PBS this upcoming January. And it is just, it is an exquisite production. It is, it hits all of these like, BBC, if you ever watched Masterpiece Theater, you know, it's got, everyone's got lovely knitwear on and there's like lambs buying docilely in the fields. But the other thing about this show is that it is just so um, poignant and it cares so much about the production values and the writing is this perfect knife's edge between being like sweet, but also Quite serious and intense about what it means to be a good person, I I happily watched that show like twice this year.
1: My guest is Catherine von Erndung, Vulture TV critic. Let's get into your top three picks for 2021. Your number three is Barry Jenkins' Underground Railroad, a historical adaptation—not a historical adaptation, a historical drama adapted from Colson Whitehead's novel of the same name. Let's listen to a clip.
3: Here. I saw a dappled wonder settling across the fields, hovering on angel wings, brandishing a blazing shield.
0: Where do they go? The ones that run away and never return. There is nothing here but suffering, pain and suffering. It is time to go. Girl in that bulletin is wanted for the murder of a child
3: Man lost my mom Then me ain't no way he ever given up on finding me
0: there's anger in you He'll fuel you yeah well What's the worst kind of fuel? The worst kind. A savagery man is capable of loss when he believes his cause to be just.
2: You came all this way on the railroad?
3: Yeah, I left behind all those peoples.
1: Catherine, in your review, you highlight the show's moments of pause among this story filled with violence and tension. Obviously, it's about enslaved people fighting for their lives. In what ways does Barry Jenkins bring a certain sort of more meditative or calm tone to a, to a traumatic subject matter?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so part of it is. What he inherits from the structure of Whitehead's novel. you know, you have this story of this young woman who is trying to escape slavery, and it is episodic. She goes through these these flights into new places, pauses there for a while, often sometimes settles into a life and then has to flee again. And so unlike, um, Um, a more simplistic slave narrative where somebody is running and you get these scenes of of flight and then freedom, it it really builds in this um, run and stop, run and stop motion. And that's both really interesting from a a storytelling standpoint because you are forced to think about freedom and then it being snatched away over and over again but it also means that the show resists that kind of simplistic, um, you know, there's a hero and there's a villain and things mm-hmm. work out or they don't at the end. And so part of what you get are these moments where because of those pauses, the characters can actually be people can actually be characters in these lives before they have to flee again. Um, and he also does, I mean, the cinematography is just incredible on this show and it, tends to linger on people's faces in ways that makes you look at them as something just beyond the like, oh, it's the enslaved person and they are running, you know, you are mm-hmm. really forced to reckon with them as, as people. I think it's just an extraordinary piece of television.
1: You know, we had this conversation in our show meeting, and I've heard it from other people in the industry that people are a little frustrated with the way the release of this was handled. Because it kind of came and went, and it seemed like a series that deserved more, if not attention, at least consideration.
2: Absolutely. I think, for one, um, it it was a difficult series. I mean... (laughs) It's not like they can't do it. It's not like uh, networks and streaming services have not figured out how to market content that people think of as being challenging. But it is challenging material to try to market. More importantly, um, it was all it all came out on a single day. And in a you know a couple of years ago, we would have said, yeah, that's what streaming does. It all comes out on it. But we know now that so many places, including Amazon Prime, um, where Underground Railroad was released has these other, I mean, they have other shows that come out weekly, Apple TV Plus does weekly. And it is very difficult to believe that this is the kind of show that anyone really wants to sit down and like, Burned through in a weekend, um, not because it's not fantastic, but because it asks you to sit with it. It wants that from, from its audience. And to just have it kind of come and go meant that people couldn't catch up. There was none of this kind of conversational buzz that could build over several weeks. And it, it truly did this show a disservice because I think a lot of people have it on their like, oh, yeah, I should probably watch that, shouldn't I? But now it feels either the moment is past or it's already. It's winter, it's hard again, and nobody really wants to sit and watch something they think is going to hurt them. But it is just an incredible piece of TV, and I I really recommend it. That was
1: Underground Railroad at number three on Catherine Von Arendunk's dunks list. She's Vulture's TV critic. Number two is Reservation Dogs. This was a big hit in our household. Follows four indigenous teens living in rural Oklahoma. What makes this friend group so engaging?
2: Wow, well, okay, so the performances of these young actors are, it, they're just incredibly, just mesmerizing and funny and everything you want in performances of of teenagers, I think, because you can completely, they, they are young, they are playful, they are goofy and stupid and they make mistakes, but they are also able to contain the show's really, um, complex, really ambiguous feelings about being indigenous teenagers in Oklahoma Uh, and their lives are full of all kinds of like stupid, goofy teen joy, but also real hardship and like unique experiences that are really unique to where they live and who they are. So this group of them, they can sort of ping off of each other. They have different personalities. Their friends by proximity, but also because their personalities sort of butt up against each other in interesting ways. And they're just a delight to spend time with. I think one of the other things Reservation Dogs does, which is so smart, is that it starts with this group of the four of them, um, Alora, Bear, Cheese, and Willie Jack are their names. And... As the as the series goes, it's a sort of half hour comedy format that we've become more familiar with, where it's kind of a serious comedy. And as the series goes, each of them gets their own focal episodes. So you can really spend time with who they are separately. And it gives the dynamic of all four of them together so much more meaning. And they they just love each other. And I love them. (laughs) It's a great show.
1: Well, let's listen to a clip of Bear Small Hill played by DeFaro Wunitai speaking to the unknown warrior. This is from Reservation Dogs.
3: Aho! Oh, Young warrior. Looks as though you've tasted the white man's lead. It's only paintballs. I've had many brothers and sisters meet the same fate in my time. Are you Crazy Horse or sitting... No, no, no. I'm not one of those awesome guys. No, I'm more of your... Uh... I'm more of your unknown warrior. Yeah, you know my name? William Knifeman. I was at the Battle of Little Bighorn. That's right. And I didn't kill anybody, but I fought bravely. Well, I didn't actually fight. I actually didn't even get into the fight itself. But I came over that hill real rugged like. I saw Custer like that, that yellow hair. He was sitting there. Son of the Morning Star, that guy right there. I really hated him. So I went after him, but then the damn horse hit a gopher hole, rolled over and squashed me. I died there. This horse actually, little shit. And now I'm meant to travel the spirit world, find lost souls like you. The spirit world, it's cold. My nipples are always hard. I'm always hungry. Got it. Being a warrior, it's not always easy. You and your thuggy ass friends, what are you doing for your people? It's easy to be bad it's hard to be a warrior with dignity remember that in my time we gave everything we died for our people we died for our land what are you gonna do what are you gonna fight for
1: that clip is from reservation Dogs. so how does magical realism factor into the show and how did they make it work
2: right so um, that's a clip from the first episode. And what's happened is that there's a, a rival gang of teens um, uh, on this reservation, and they come after our main group with paintballs. And Bear gets hit with his paintball and sort of falls down in the ground, and then enters this dreamscape um, where he talks to this unknown warrior who's, as you can hear, very funny. And it's a nice, uh, it's a succinct representation of the show's sense of humor, which is so funny but so dry. And the unknown warrior keeps returning to Bear whenever he has moments of pause. There's a scene later where he's in a clinic and he's there talking. There's a scene of him like peeing behind a dumpster and sees Bear there like, oh, what are you doing? And it is a really fascinating way for the show to kind of touch on both um, indigenous mythology, but also a sort of broader American, like, isn't that sort of what indigenous people in this country, what what they were like, you know, this idea of the safe spirit animal or whatever, but to take it and uh, own a kind of humor about it, but also take it so seriously. I mean, what that warrior is talking about is like, what are you doing with your life? Which is absolutely mm-hmm. what Bear is asking himself. And it makes the show feel so... Um, centered in its own questions about what it's asking about sort of Americanness and and what these what possibilities these young kids have.
1: That's Reservation Dogs from Native American filmmaker Sterling Harjo and director Tycho Waititi. Your number one pick was Station Eleven, a post-apocalyptic drama that takes a look at how civilization moves forward after a pandemic and and recreates it itself. Some pandemic shows have missed the mark this year. Some have seen like too much too soon. Some have seen, some CV has seemed too frivolous too soon. Uh, You write that this should be a disaster is how you put it,
2: but it's not. Obviously it's your number one show. How did they pull this off? Yeah. Well, so the first thing is that they are working from incredible source material. Um, Station 11, the novel by Emily St. John Mandel is, a very different kind of pandemic story than the one that so many of us are used to, where it's, you know, the apocalypse comes in whatever shape it's going to be, this virus comes, everyone dies. And then it's just like brutal. (laughs) I I think the image that they, you think of is like a gross parking garage, that's just all gray and there's like a puddle and then everyone's, everyone's reflected in this puddle. And that's kind of what um, bleak apocalypse tends to look like. And so the first thing that makes this show work is that it was designed, it was conceived and designed as a television show before COVID happened. They shot two episodes of it in the winter of 2020, which meant that they were approaching it with, you know, without the kind of trauma that we all have. But they were already thinking about how to make it a kind of post-apocalypse show that felt unfamiliar, where it was about the role of art in our lives, where it was about color and joy and the sense of nature returning. And yes, hardship and pain, but also humans really connecting with each other on a level that technology has prevented. And so because that was already the idea before COVID happened, a lot of what feels close to us now when we're watching Station Eleven is a rhyme, but it is not a reference, right? Like they're not looking at COVID and saying, we're doing that. It is a sort of happenstance of what kinds of things they were already thinking about and what showed up in in the final product. I think one of the other things that makes it so successful is um, it is a show about artists. It is a show about a troupe of theater actors who do Shakespeare productions um, in the Great Lakes region. They're called The Traveling Symphony. And because that is the premise and it's taking place 20 years later, not like two years later, not in this sort of immediate triggering trauma moment, it is already trying to process what has happened to the world and is so healing and lovely and warm and wonderful to watch for me now because it is not like holding up this mirror and saying, look at how bad it is right now. It is in this place where it is saying, what would it look like if we tried to imagine a world after this? I felt so much relief watching it. It was so lovely to have something try to hold the pain, but also try to transcend it somehow.
1: And for those of you who are listening, we actually spoke to showrunner Patrick Somerville and Mackenzie Davis, who stars in Station Eleven, if you want to check out those conversations. I've been speaking with Catherine von Arendung, Vulture TV critic, about her top picks of the year. So we went with the top three. I'm gonna let you do dealer's choice. One more mm. show on your list that you would really like people to check out.
2: Ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, I'm going to assume you already know about Succession. You've probably heard about You on Netflix, a great season. I truly love this kid's show on Netflix called City of Ghosts. And part of the reason I've been trying to yell about it is that it is one of those that I think has flown completely under the radar. I think even Netflix is not planning to make any more of it, which just makes me... So... It is a is a gorgeous animated show about Los Angeles. And the premise is that it is sort of young, elementary-aged kids who are ghost hunters. And you're like, yeah, okay, ghost hunters. But the deal is that they show up at places, regular places, laundromats and um, Chinese restaurants and, you know, music stores, where there are these low key hauntings. Somebody just keeps knocking a musical instrument off the shelf or something, a ghost. And the kids say, hey ghost, what's going on? And then the ghost says, oh, I I used to live in this building and I I always liked making music. And I just, I wish that they would bring back the 7 p.m. rehearsal, because that was one of my favorite kinds. And then they tell the current owner. And what it is, is this children's show about the way urban landscapes change about gentrification, about um, the kinds of people who used to live where we live, what has taken over, how we can understand the past without being scared of it, the idea that the ghosts in our lives are not terrifying but are instead people to continue to engage with, even though they're gone. And I, I watched it with my seven year old. She was like, wow, this is a great show. And I was like, yeah, it's really good. I mean, I, it was so, it was so moving to watch. And I, um, even though there are only six episodes, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough, particularly if you have sort of older, elementary aged children. Um, and I desperately hope the creator's name is Elizabeth Ito. And I'm so looking forward to whatever she does next.
1: Well, we do have a clip from City of Ghosts for you since you named it as one of the ones to watch. Let's take a listen. This is from City of Ghosts.
0: My name is Bagel. I'm from Venice. So what's this interview for? It's for our club. Try to talk to every ghost we meet on the record. That's awesome. Very cool. So what was it like growing up here? Skateboarding was a huge part of mine and my friends' identities growing up in Venice, skateboarding and surfing. Venice was the mecca back in the day. It was very chaotic. It was extremely volatile and it was very fun. The people that I grew up with were artists in some way, whether they were photographers or people that drew or painted and or all of the above, you know, or wrote poetry or songs and played music. We all very much were that way because of the freedom that we had. Definitely. It, it definitely plays a giant part. I mean, if you constrict someone, you're not going to get the best of that person.
1: Totally. Gotta love a kid interviewing a ghost named Bagel. I see why you were. <laughs> <right. laughs>
2: Catherine Von Ayrdonk
1: is Vulture's TV critic. She's been sharing her best of list. Of course, you can read more on Vulture.com. Catherine, thank you so much. And thank you for joining us all year long. We look forward to talking to you in 2022.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I so love being here. Up
1: next, Craig Zobel, director of Mayor of Easttown, which swept the Emmys this year and was ranked in the top five on best of lists from The Guardian to Variety. You're listening to All of It.